message today. So fourth grade and under can go with Mrs. Langham. Corinthians chapter 10. Many people as they go through life find themselves in situations or circumstances where they feel trapped. Uh, you may be in one now or you may have been coming out of one, or you may be getting ready to go into one. But most of us, there are different times in our life that we feel, feel trapped. And it can be by different things. Uh, circumstances that close in on us and for which we desire to escape, and there is none. So sometimes it can be, we can be entrapped by ill health or unemployment or an unhappy employment. Sometimes we can be victims of accidents or victims of other people's sin. Sometimes we can feel trapped in a broken relationship or a bereavement that doesn't, that seems to close about and not let us loose. People can be trapped by depression or fear or doubt or confusion. And so we find ourselves oftentimes in places like that. And we wonder sometimes um, exactly what, uh, what can happen, what can, we can do about it. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about this a little bit. But I want us to be sure that we get, um, get the context correct. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul's writing to the church. And he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So one of the things that we need to be consciously aware of more than we are is that there is a unbreakable essential link between what happens in this world and what happens in the spiritual dimension. It's inseparable because you are a, a complete composite person, body, soul, and spirit. And what affects one affects the others, and they are inextricably linked together. And so here these people were. This is a pretty good picture, isn't it, that he's painted so far. All the, he's talking about the Exodus, and he says they were all out there in the wilderness, and uh, they were all together, and the presence of the Lord was there. His presence was there. They were drinking of spiritual food. God was providing them food every single day in the form of the manna. And it's more than just food. What he was doing was he was building faith because they were in a place where they could not feed themselves. And they were forced to, to rely upon God on a daily basis. You couldn't save the manna from one day to the next. It got rotten. Um, you know, we, 
our faith and our walk with the Lord is like that. It's a day-by-day walk with Him. And we can't check into God every now and then and say, you know, I'm over here and this is what's happening with me. I'll call you when I need you again. But that's how many of us live. So here these people were. They knew God. They had been at Mount Sinai. They had seen the cloud and the earthquake and all of the other things. They had heard the voice of God. Those people had heard an audible voice of God. And they're walking through the wilderness now. Pillar of fire at night, pillar of cloud by day. All these miracles happening around them. And it's daily evidence of the presence of God in their life. Paul picks up on this in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They died. And they died in the wilderness under the judgment of God. And yet they had been in his presence. They saw the miracles. His presence was there. They were eating the manna. They were drinking from the water that came from the, from the flinty rock. They saw all those things. They experienced them. And yet God was not pleased with them. I wonder about uh, many of us in the church, you know, we come and if we're part of our church, most of us take communion every Sunday. Does it mean anything? Just a ritual. So these people were picking up manna and after a while they got tired of the miracle. They got weary of the miracle. And began to take it for granted. And this is what Paul is warning us about. And he says, starting in verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So Paul is saying, okay, here we are in the church. And he's writing to the church at Corinth. And he's going to be talking to them in the very next chapter. He's going to be talking partly about the Lord's Supper. And in chapter 15, he's going to talk about it even more. And so this is the context that he's, he's writing here. Um, this is what they did in the wilderness with the manna and with the water that God provided. And that rock, that water was the water of Christ is what he says. That's the application and the interpretation that Paul makes. So body and blood of Christ, what do we do with it? And so he says, do not desire evil and do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. One of the things he's talking about was even while God was speaking to Moses on top of Mount Sinai, this was just a few days after all these people had heard the voice of God, that's when they made the golden idol. right after they had had this incredible experience of the living God and come fresh out of his experience, they walked right into sin. So what do we do Sunday night? What are we doing Monday? What's going on in our lives? Paul says this is an example so that we don't make the same mistakes they did. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumbled as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Uh, 
He's talking about several historical events that took place, and I want to highlight one other one. When he was talking about the destroyer, this is from Numbers 14. And this is where they had traveled. They, were, they had the Ark of the Covenant with them and everything. Still the manna was coming, still the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, uh, the presence of God leading them day by day. They got to Cadiz Barnea right on the verge of the promised land, and they sent out the spies to spy out the land. You know the story. And 10 of the 12 came back and said, man, it's everything God promised, but there are obstacles there. What? Did they think it was going to, they were just going to walk in and, and people would lay down? And What did they expect? You're going to have to fight the battle. But God is with you and he is going to give you the victory. But it's a day-by-day -day walk by faith. They've been walking out for several months now. Man is there every day. God is faithful. He's there every day for us. Every day. Doesn't matter how we feel. Doesn't matter what, we, what people think of us. That manna was there every day. It's available. But you have to go out and pick it up. So they said, oh no. We're obstacles here. Difficulties. Oh, God has led us out here and he's deserted us and now we're all going to die. And all of our kids are going to become slaves to these pagans. And we, isn't that like us? We're Christians. We're going along the Christian life. All of a sudden, bam, we get hit with a very hard dif uh, difficulty or obstacle or a challenge. And we just go all to pieces as if God is not there all along. As if the promises that he gave us are not real. What does it mean to live a Christian life? And so Paul is warning us, saying, don't be like them. What they said was, I don't think God's going to help us here. And God heard. And he knows our hearts. And God became angry with them. How long will I put up with them? Uh, how long? What, do, what does he have to do? He's given us his son. He's sent us his Holy Spirit. What else do we expect God to do? So God said, I heard you when you said, I wish we had died in the wilderness. And what you said, God said, I will do. You are going to die in the wilderness. And those children that you said would be slaves, those are the children that are going to go in and possess the land that you refused to enter. So we talk about God wouldn't send anyone to hell. Well, no. But if you're determined to go there, the door is open. He is not going to come down and physically pick you up and move you. That's a choice that you can make if you want to go there. But we don't have to. It's a choice that we're making. And it's a choice that they made. And so Moses comes back and he says, okay, you're going to wander in the wilderness for until this whole generation dies out and God will let, raise up a new generation that will believe and will go in. Well, now, this is the judgment of God. He says, that's what's going to happen. So tomorrow we're going to turn around and head back to the desert instead of going into the promised land. Well, then, all of a sudden, now they're saying, it's all written down there in Numbers 14. Now they all got together and said, oh, no, oh, no, we've sinned. Oh, God, we've sinned. Please forgive us. And so then they go up on the mountains and they gather up, everybody. We're all here. We're ready to go in and fight the battle. And Moses said, God just told you he's not going to take you in there. He's told you that you don't go down there and fight head back to the wilderness. They were determined they're going to go. 
Here's the sin of presumption and pride. Uh, we've taken the food. God's with us. We're the chosen people. Let's go in and fight the battle. Moses didn't go with them. Ark of the Covenant didn't go with them. Moses, last thing he told them, don't go because God is not with you. And they went down in their presumption and fought and they got killed and defeated and their enemies chased them. And now they're running away from their enemies. God had told them. Uh So, this is the context that Paul writes this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Uh, I don't think there's room in the Christian life for smugness. You know? Well, I had an experience with the Lord way back when. and It's just me and the Lord. And I don't know about the rest of you guys. Too bad for y'all, but I, it's okay because I'm, I'm going to be all right here. And it's okay. Because I had an experience once. Hadn't done anything since. Lived my life the way I want to, but it's okay. Because I come every Sunday and take communion. It's going to be all right. Well, no, it's not. Not if that's the way we're going about it, is it? So then Paul writes to us, for those of us, they, were, they felt trapped. And Paul gives us this promise in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So this word for temptation is not, it's, it's a much broader term than what we normally think of. When I think of temptation, I think of sin. <laughs> you know, something I'm not supposed to do, and I'm being tempted to do it. But it's a broader term than that. It actually refers to testing that's common to everybody. And so we could say um, trials, afflictions, um, sicknesses, diseases, um, disappointments, frustration, anything that's there to be a challenge to us. And that's what we're praying when we pray the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Lord, lead us not into temptation. Help us not to go to those places. And yet, oftentimes we find that the temptation is there because of the responses within ourselves. In Gethsemane, and the disciples were praying and Jesus had told them to watch, he woke them up and he said, watch and pray so that you do not enter into temptation. Temptation is going to be all around us, one form or another. The only way you can get away from being tempted is to die. So, notice what it says about this temptation that he's talking about. He says, this temptation is universal. It's common to everyone. And sometimes we feel uh, isolated in our temptation and we feel like there's being pressure placed upon us that is too great, more than we can bear, more than anybody else would 
anybody else would be able to stand up under. Uh, you know, it's like uh, nobody's been tempted like this. Well, who do you know? That's a very arrogant statement. <laughs> and we don't know, we haven't read our history, have we? About people who have undergone far more than you and I will ever face. So this is a temptation. These kind of things happen to everyone. But it's tempered, it's modulated, it's controlled. God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now our ability, as we think of it and God's view of it, is very, very different things. Um, you know, sometimes in our growth, we're challenged to do something that we don't think that we're able to do. Now the people who know us well and the people um, who are over us know better than we do sometimes. And they know that it's going to be a, a hard challenge, a tough task, but we are up to it and we will grow and mature and be better for it if we, are, if we meet that challenge. But left to ourselves, we would say, I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. You remember Job. In the first two chapters of Job, um, Satan desires to, to challenge God about Job. And God allows certain things, but God sets limits over which Satan cannot pass. God sets the limits. In the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, actually in the upper room before they got there, Jesus told Peter, as Peter was saying, I'll never deny you, even though everybody else uh, turns their back and runs away, I'm, I'm with you, Lord. I'm going to be there any minute. And as far as he knew his heart, he was being as honest as he could. He was very sincere, very honest, but he didn't know his heart as well as he should have. Jesus knew him better. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. When you come back, minister to your others, to the brothers. So Jesus knew what was coming better than Peter. But it's modulated. God is not allowing us to be tempted beyond our strength. And it's also an opportunity to grow. So it says, God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able and will make a way to escape. So we can prove God's faithfulness um, by our own experience. Andre Crouch, uh, early um, contemporary Christian music guy wrote a song called Through It All and part of the lyrics of this thing is if we never had a problem how would we know that God could solve them? How would we know about the grace? How would we know about his faithfulness? How would we know about the strength and growth that takes place within us? And so we can read James and we can read First Peter and it talks about how oftentimes uh, it's through temptation or trials that we grow and mature spiritually so that we don't remain infants in our faith. And faith is like a muscle. The more you exercise it, the stronger it becomes. And if you neglect it and ignore it, it begins to atrophy. It begins to deteriorate on its own. Not that you're doing anything harmful. You're just not using it at all. And many of us, our faith is that way. It's not that we're doing something to destroy our faith. We're just not using it at all. So when the challenge comes, then we feel weak and vulnerable. 
And so it also says that it shows that our faith in God is genuine. Also, the temptations and trials that we face are not insurmountable. There will be a way over, under, around, or through. It's called the way out that God promises. And it is endurable. Sometimes we don't think so. Sometimes um, the mountain is so big or the pain is so severe we think, I, I can't endure this. God promises. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The hope is that God will provide sufficient strength for the endurance of whatever trials may come to people. Notice what happens here. There are no exaggerated promises, no miraculous deliverance promised, no promise that the problem will suddenly vanish. But the way out described in terms of being given strength to cope with an impossible situation. It's a very realistic expectation. There's no favored status here because as far as the hardness of life goes, these are things that are common to everyone. What it does promise is that God in love is present and accessible to people in every situation, joyful or sorrowful, whether they understand it or not. And oftentimes we don't understand. Faith does not provide us with any exemption from trouble. It simply points to the direction from which hope can come. So God's faithfulness in providing a way out for people who are tested is through giving them the ability to endure their testing. So Proverbs 17 says, the crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the heart. In Isaiah 48:10, God tells the Israelites, Behold, I have refined you, but not with silver. I have chosen you in the furnace of affliction. I have chosen you in the furnace of affliction. I don't know if that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thinking or not. Because they had a very real furnace. And the people who threw them in died because it was such a hot flame radiating out of there seven times hotter than the manufacturer's recommended temperature. <laughs> seven times hotter. And so these big burly soldiers that threw them in got burned and died. And God's children, in the midst of that flame that was such a hot, fiery flame, walked around free. Only thing burned was their bonds. And they were free. Now, they knew that that they didn't have a promise that that would happen every time. And they had told Nebuchadnezzar, he asked them, what God is able to save you from the fiery furnace when I throw you in there? And they said, our God can do that if he wants to. We don't know if he wants to. But we know he's able and we are going to serve him and we are not going to bow down. And they did this very respectfully. O Cain, live forever. 
Um, with respect, this is something we cannot do in faithfulness to our God. If he chooses to save us, he can. If he doesn't, we are still not going to bow down because we know him. And we fear him more than we fear you. And God delivered them. So this liberation from captivity to fear and bondage and temptation is pointing towards a faith that's dependent upon trust rather than certainty. A lot of questions remain unanswered. Some problems remain unsolved. But the way out is not an escape, but rather it is a way through. So it's through the sternest test that God in his faithfulness supplies the ability to endure. You know, we, uh, we had, that was quite a shocking statement about, the, about this family losing their son and new daughter-in-law. In the book of Zechariah, it talks about when the Lord comes back, talks about the Israelites uh, getting off in tribal groups and then clan groups and then family groups, each family standing in front of their house, weeping and mourning and wailing because they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as a mourning for an only son. This young man that got killed yesterday was the buyer's only son. And you think, well, what does God say about that? God understands that. He lost his only son in an untimely, cruel death as well. And he can provide the comfort that only he can give. And they will look upon him whom they pierced and they will mourn with a bitter mourning as for an only son. And all heaven understands that. And so their hearts are breaking with them as well. At the same time, offering hope. In Psalm 68... Verse 19, the psalmist says, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burdens. God is our salvation. In Isaiah chapter 63, verse 9, these are familiar passages. We don't take it far enough. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 9. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. In his mercy and his grace, he was afflicted with them. This is why Jesus came. Tempted in every point as we are, Yet he never sinned. He understands the limits. And Hebrews says because he suffered being tempted, it wasn't an easy ride for him any more than it's an easy ride for you. He was tempted just like you are. Yet he did not sin. So he understands what it takes to overcome. And it says he picked them up and carried them all the days of old. For the people, while they were going through those experiences, it did not feel like they were being carried. 
It feels like all that weight, all that load is on you. And nobody understands and nobody can help you with it because they don't know what's going on inside you. And sometimes we don't understand ourselves. We just know the pain or the grief or the sorrow. But he does. I said that they didn't take it far enough because in Isaiah chapter 46, it's a fantastic passage, verses 3 and 4. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. That's a great hope for old people. That's a great hope for unborn babies. Born by me before your birth. Great hope for infants carried from the womb. Great hope to all the different stages of life that we go through. From the womb to the tomb. He's there and beyond. And God says, I'm carrying you. And so that's our hope and that's the promise. When David wrote Psalm 23, it wasn't just poetry. And we like the part about leading, leading us beside still waters, restoring our soul, green pastures, that's nice. I want to go there. But he doesn't stop, does he? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us in the hour of temptation, whatever the cause, whatever the reason, even if it's because of foolishness on our own part or sin on our own part. I pray, Father, that you would meet us there and that by your grace through the cross of Christ and through the power of the risen Lord and the Holy Spirit's coming, you would help us to discover the way out, the way through that difficulty in your presence, walking through the valley to the green pastures on the other side. We thank you for the hope and the promise. More than that, we thank you for the reality in our daily life. Through Christ our Lord, amen. So as we come to communion today, I want to remind us of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26. And again, this is what Jesus told the disciples. Verse 41. Now, Jesus, they had had a, a long meal. It was late. Um, they were out in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was an olive orchard. It was quiet. It was cool. The breeze is blowing. Um, no electric lights, no radios. It's quiet. Uh, everybody's asleep. Most, most good people are in bed. And Jesus is praying in agony. And um, 
He gets his closest followers, and he says, man, I need you. Here's Jesus coming to his disciples. I need you. My soul is sorrowful unto death. I need you to watch with me and pray. And they uh, sat down under the tree and began to pray, and they fell asleep. And Jesus woke them up, and he said, could you not watch with me one hour? And then here comes the instructions. They had promised and failed. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak because he knows what's coming in the next hour. They do not. They still don't have a clue. They still think they're solid in their faith and that when the challenge comes, they are able to meet it. You know, they used to sing this song. I used to think it was a, an arrogant song. Are ye able? Said the master. And the chorus, Lord, we are able. <laughs> that's not the intent of the song, but, you know, one way of looking at it, wow, that's like James and John. Yeah, we're able to do that. And he says, you don't know what you're, <laughs> what you're talking about. <laughs> the green pasture is okay. Valley of the shadow of death, maybe not so much. So, Jesus tells them, watch and pray. And now he's not praying for himself, he's praying for them. That you do not enter in. It's not that you're not tempted, but you don't enter in and experience it. You know, temptations, temptations. It's only a sin when it becomes a part of it. So it's like they, they used to say, uh, all the water and all the ocean can't sink the ship unless it gets inside. Well, temptation's that way. It can be all around you, it can be severe, it can be harsh, it can be whatever. It's not going to harm you unless you invite it in, unless you enter in. And that's what Jesus is warning them about. And they're going to fail. They don't know it, but Jesus knows it. And it's because of that very thing that he is going to the cross. And his death on the cross is not only for Pontius Pilate, it's for James and John and Peter and you and me. That's who it's for. And so he invites us to come um, with an awareness that there but for the grace of God, I will fall every time, every time. There but for the grace of God. And the thing about it is, every time, Paul tells us, the grace of God is there, present, and available. But you have to use it. You have to live it. You have to pick it up and walk through the valley. Uh, God's not going to walk through that valley for you, but he will walk through the valley with you. And that's our way of escape. We can lean on him, and when it gets really tough, and we don't have anything else within us, even our faith fails, then he'll pick us up and carry us. That's his grace, and that's his love. He expressed that to us in very real, physical ways. On the night that he was betrayed, after washing the disciples' feet, those who were going to betray him, those who were going to deny him, those who were going to run away in fear, they had this incredible fellowship there, incredible time of revelation of Jesus praying for them. And at the end of the supper, he gives thanks. And he picks up some bread and he breaks it. And he gives it to his disciples saying, each of you eat from this. This is my body. It's broken for you. After supper, he took the cup. After he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, 
Drink ye all of this, or all of you drink from this. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. It's shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. For the cleansing, for the purification, for the way out. So he invites us to come and to participate um, so we can come as we are and we can receive from him that which we need. So will those serving communion please come forward.